Envision Jesus and all of his zeal. Picture Jesus not effeminate and for some reason pale with inexplicably blue eyes and lip gloss and a silk robe. Not the way that Renaissance artists rendered him. Picture Jesus zealous the way that the word of God reveals him to be. Picture Jesus showing up on the scene and seeing the money changers who had turned the law of God into a spiritual racketeering scheme, walking up to their tables, grasping the table and then overturning it. That's my Jesus. Have you met him? Do you know him? See his zeal. What is zeal? Zeal is that molten hot, heart-rending tsunami adrenaline that overtakes a husband who is utterly overwhelmed with the urge to break another man's jaw because he hurt his wife. Now, God likewise has zeal for his bride, the church, but it is magnified by the 10 octillion megatons of a supernova and then some. God is zealous, driven for his purposes, and already has decided and written that he wins in the end. That's my God. Have you met him? Do you know him? I pray that you would encounter him today through his word. Be drawn in by the spirit of God. Come to see his glory. As we study the book of Isaiah, you're going to see it describe God as the Lord of armies. The Bible is full of these beautiful stories of these incredible angels, these enigmatic descriptions of these angels, angels whose descriptions would align between uh, Ezekiel and John, even though Ezekiel and John lived countless years apart from each other. It's profound the way that these angels, these servants of God would be there at his behest, faithful to him to accomplish his purposes. And they are in our midst right now. God is zealous and he has armies at his disposal. And just one of these angels, as you're going to see in today's text, could wipe out an entire army. And God has an army of angels and he has zeal. And it is by the zeal of the Lord of armies that the impossible would be done. Prophesied in Isaiah and fulfilled in the gospels. Bear witness to it today. This is all the miracle you'll ever need to fully believe in Jesus as Lord. And if this is not sufficient for you, no numbers of rabbits I could pull out from under a hat or tricks I could have up my sleeve would convince you, my skeptical friend. I pray that the Holy Spirit draws upon your heart. You see the truth of the word of God who does the impossible just as he calls his shot and says he will. Believe in faith and be saved and then join this zealous God of mine in his mission to proclaim hope to the hopeless and to give light to people who are walking in darkness, both in the original recipients in ancient Judah and today as well. Isaiah chapter nine is brilliant with hope and beauty. And if you haven't been following along with the reading plan, which you should be, by the way, and if you haven't been in a small group, which you should be, by the way, and if that small group isn't using Explore the Bible, which it should be, by the way, I want to give you context whereby you can appreciate the brilliant light, the glimmer of hope that is Isaiah 9. See, Isaiah 5 is more typical of some of the opening content in the first half of the book. Judah, part of the divided nation of Israel, was partying hard, 
ostensibly following after God, but neglecting the poor, cordoning off land from them, drinking, partying, having a great time, acting like everything was okay. This is their wake up call. And these words, this harsh word of warning applied to ancient Judah in a way that I think is quite analogous to today's corporate context. But it also tells us about how God spoke to his people in the Old Testament and God's character unadulterated and unchanged today in the New Testament era, likewise has the same words to say to his people when they do the same things today. Here's Isaiah chapter five. At their feasts, they have harp and lyre and tambourine, flute and wine. They do not perceive the Lord's actions and they do not see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile because they lack knowledge. Her dignitaries are starving and her masses are parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, that's the place of the dead in the Old Testament, enlarges its throat and opens wide its enormous jaws and down go Zion's dignitaries, her masses, her crowds, and those who celebrate in her. Humanity is brought low. Each person is humbled and haughty eyes are humbled. But the Lord of armies, remember that title, The Lord of armies is exalted by his justice. The holy God demonstrates his holiness through his righteousness. The right things that God does are evidences of his holy nature. Verse 17, lambs will graze as if in their own pastures and resident aliens will eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of deceit and pull sin along with cart ropes. To those who say, let him hurry up and do his work quickly so that we can see it. Put on a show for me, God. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel take place so that we can know it. When I wind up the box, you dance, monkey. Otherwise, I don't believe in you. Does that sound familiar, my skeptical friend? Have you been demanding that God obey you before you believe in him? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. I hope that future generations look back on this era and call us all insane. We have called evil good and good evil. Our worldview is perfectly inverted. We will look the other way when certain injustices occur. And then in the name of those same injustices, commit injustice and riot and burn businesses and murder people. And then our news people show up and stand in front of burning buildings and call it a peaceful protest. Can we please stop pretending to be morons now? We've called evil good and we've called good evil no more. Christian, if we don't speak out the word of God, all of society will lose track of what goodness is. God is good. It's up to us to proclaim that truth. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. It's perfectly distorted, perfectly contorted, perfectly inverted view of right and wrong. You think yourself good while you commit acts of evil and you look at acts that are good and you put a label of evil over them. Woe to you, God says. We can see this playing out in our secular culture today. We have a lot in common with what God was indicting ancient Judah for, but this also plays out even in Christian circles. Remember, I warned you, most of the arrows you take standing up for your Christian faith, are gonna hit you in the back because they're gonna come from other Christians. I've experienced this. I've seen this. I've seen Christians look at something that was done in a good way and then call it evil. And then in an act of evil, 
go around spreading something that they know not to be true, dismantling trust and actively spreading and propagating lies all while professing to know Christ. That is until they're done spreading this work and they think of themselves as they do this evil thing as good. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. I don't call myself good. The gospel tells me to be skeptical of my sinful self. I relate to what Paul says in Romans 7 when he calls himself wretched. If you're tempted to fall into this false narrative, like you're the unappreciated genius and every time you experience correction, it just feeds your confirmation bias and your delusion grows even worse. If you think that you're the lone warrior for justice and everybody else is wrong, you are set up for a perfectly inverted worldview. Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. If you haven't seen this, go watch our sermon, Romans chapter three, filmed March 22nd, 2020, page three of the sermon archive right now, titled, Our Shortfall. We were born depraved. Have you ever noticed that like the bad guys never call themselves the bad guys? They don't ever sit around and say, we're the bad guys, right? Like they think that they're the best guys. They think that they're the only ones with the guts to do what's right. And so their delusional self-narrative is just confirmed all the more when they experience pushback from people who are doing good. They'll call those good people evil. They'll do evil things and call themselves good. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. It's happening in the church corporately. It's happening culture-wide right now. Let it begin right here now with each of us looking not to the arsonists in riots for like a hundred straight days in Portland, starting a fire in the bottom floor of an apartment buildings where people live above them. Don't look at that arsonist with condescension, but see your own past sinful self reflected in that person and know that were it not for the intervention of a good God, you would be right there with him. Don't call out the corruption of the world without first confessing how you've contributed to it. In our narrative, let God be the hero. God is the good one. And I take responsibility for ways in which I've contributed to evil. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Now, consider what follows. That's a pretty good indicator of what to expect in the rest of Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah 9 now, the beautiful hope that emanates from it. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun, one of the 12 tribes, and the land of Naphtali, another of the 12 tribes. Remember those names. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. Notice how he speaks in present tense about something that's going to happen from this perspective. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in, uh, on the day of Midian. That sounds awesome, Isaiah, but what happened on the day of Midian? If we don't know the battle of Midian, we can't fully appreciate the reference that he's making. He's making a prophecy about Jesus. And he just evoked this story of Midian. When you hear Midian, think Gideon. Gideon is one of the judges in the book of Judges. It's also 
the namesake for a ministry that a lot of people in Highlands are a part of, where you remember this, these buildings called hotels that we used to go to? Well, in the drawer, there'd always be a Bible. It's stamped. It's from the Gideons. Thank you for your ministry, Gideons. Well, Gideon was, he, when, we, when we wrote the Explore the Bible uh, a piece called Characters on Gideon, we called him reluctant. He was humble. He was scared of what God was about to do through him. And God was reassuring him and coaching him along. In many ways, Gideon typified and foreshadowed Christ. Well, Gideon was in charge and they, the Israelites had a massive army and God actually thought the army was too big. So he takes on a process of whittling down the army exponentially. Gideon on God's behalf tells the men, look, if you're scared, you can go home. And 22,000 soldiers quit. They're left with 10,000. This is still too many. So God continues to whittle it down even just to 300 not the 300 of Leonidas. This is a different 300, actually a cooler 300. This is Israel. <laughs> this 300 of God would not even use military tactics. They, it was whittled down to this number so that God would get the glory for the victory that would come. I remember my Sunday school teacher as a little boy was trying to explain why God had some people drink the water this way and another drink it that way and trying to explain the tactics of it. I already know the reason why now. It's in Judges 7 too. All right, listen to, listen to Judges 7 to The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, I save myself. That's why God did what he did. God weakened his own army so that his strength would shine through. Can, can somebody right now, God's talking to somebody, he's humbling you so that he gets the glory. Humble yourself therefore under God's mighty hand. He will lift you up in the due time. Like John the Baptist, let him become greater that we would become less. God at the battle of Midian weakened his own army. It was similar to what God did through Joshua's leadership in Joshua chapter six, opposite Jericho, where they took the city of Jericho with means, tactics that didn't make sense to them at the time. It was all just so that God would get the glory. It's similar here. God had them blow ram's horns and raise torches and shatter pitchers. And the result was that the Midian's heard the ruckus, started killing each other, and then fled. And as they fled, Israel took them and were victorious. So as people told the story of Midian, the same story that Isaiah is evoking in this prophecy, they take no credit for it. Okay, it didn't come about because of some self-improvement plan. It didn't come about because of some advanced weapon. It didn't come about because of some brilliant military tactician. Like it all just came about because God did it. God alone gets the glory here. That's what Isaiah is evoking as he prophesies the coming birth of Christ. The prophecy he's gonna make about Jesus is like what God did at Midian. Nobody's gonna be able to take credit for this. In fact, God's gonna humble us before he does it so that he gets all the glory for it. And we can take no credit for the redemption that the Messiah is gonna bring. Continue in the text with me. For every trampling boot of battle and bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Exquisite and incredible, incredible words. Absolutely amazing to me, this, this prophecy that the government will be on his shoulders. I think we sometimes emphasize the wrong word. 
if we emphasize the word government, I think it falls short. The government will be on his shoulders. Try this on for size. Listen to what happens in your heart when you hear it this way. The government will be on his shoulders. Try that on for size. In a time of chaos and cultural unrest and a mistrust, a deep mistrust of government, doesn't it feel good to remind your aching, weary heart that ultimately all the justice systems of this world will have to answer to the justice of God? that all this is on his shoulders, that while the enemy has been given some modicum of freedom wherein to attack us, we know that he is sovereign. While the devil is responsible, God is sovereign. Do not blame God for that which the devil has carried out and trust and know that God is good, that he has set the date for the all time destruction of evil forevermore. And until that day, you will trust in him. You will know that all of this ultimately is on his shoulders. The government will be on his his shoulders. Do you feel the burden come off your shoulders? Now, as Americans, we still got to vote. We still got to speak out truth. Okay, Christian, if you don't speak out truth, truth in culture is going to crumble. You still got to run for public office, please. But in the end, ultimately, it's all on his shoulders. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. It's exquisite when you see what God just did with these names. I see a picture of the Trinity all in one. Eternal Father, is that not God the Father? Prince of Peace, this is a name Jesus fulfills. It's the Son. The Wonderful Counselor, this is literally a title that Jesus gave while prophesying the coming dissension of the Holy Spirit as it fulfilled in Acts chapter two to his disciples, calling the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the wonderful counselor is the Holy Spirit of God. And these three together, the eternal father, the prince of peace, the son, the wonderful counselor, the spirit, all three together are one. They are the mighty God. So the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, these are all descriptors of our triune God, three in one. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is fully God, fully man, one with the Father, ministering right here on earth. It's profound. And it was prophesied about Jesus before he was even born, all the way back in Isaiah chapter nine. Look at verse seven. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. That sounds really good, right? We love the word prosperity. Every time it comes up, oh man, that's my life verse. But what is this about? Orthodox Jews that will trip over this verse, they forget the original promise that actually made Israel. It all began with a promise to bless all nations, but they try to interpret this through the lens of just the political interests of Israel alone. And the result is a really pathetically small view of the Messiah. It's the same mistake that even the disciples made after the resurrection, talking with Jesus. Okay, you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel now. Are you going to oust the Roman occupiers and restore our political influence here? That they were thinking way too small. It's not just about Israel. It's always ever been about blessing all the nations of the earth. When Israel had just crossed 
the Jordan River opposite Jericho. They circumcised a new generation of Israelites because they stopped circumcising in Egypt. They observed the, the Passover and they've been corporately weaned from the miraculously provided manna to the fruit of the land of Canaan. Joshua, successor to Moses, spots a shadowy, mysterious, angelic figure. Joshua chapter five, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, are you for us or our enemies? Neither, he replied. I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. I told you our God is the Lord of armies. Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in homage and asked him, what does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did that. Do you see the similarities between what Joshua just experienced and what Moses experienced by the burning bush? He just came face to face and face to sword with an armed, hostile, and very candid angel who commanded the Lord's army. And when Joshua asked him, are you for us or for our enemies? The angel's answer was neither. This, this armed combatant and commander of an army was for God. That's who he is for. That's who this angel army works for. We, we saw in the book of Romans, there's no question Israel is God's chosen nation. He elected them, okay, from the descendants of Jacob over the descendants of Esau. That is his sovereign right to do that. And we, have, we are in no place to talk back to God about that. God sovereignly intervened, delivering them from slavery in Egypt, demonstrating the impotence of the whole Egyptian pantheon, hardening Pharaoh's heart in some cases, just to show that he is God. We saw in Numbers and Deuteronomy how time and time again, God miraculously delivered Israel, how he favors Israel. He loves Israel. And the book of Revelation says that God is not done with the nation of Israel yet. There's a coming revival prophesied in the book of Revelation. But the promise from the very beginning, all the way back to the progenitor, the patriarch, Abraham himself has always been about blessing all nations. Check my work on this. Genesis 18, 18. Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed to, through him. Genesis 22, 18. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Genesis 26, 4. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all these lands and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither. He is for the Lord and the Lord's purposes. See, the dominion will be vast and the prosperity will never end. To think that that applied only to the nation of Israel is to have a pitifully small view of just what God has in store and just what God is planning through Israel and through this prophecy in Isaiah 9. It's not just about one nation's political interests. It's about the kingdom of heaven where people from every nation, every race, every tribe, every language, every tongue, every era will together come before him and join with the angels that sing around him. Holy, holy, holy. The superlative form of the highest praise is the Lord God almighty who was, who is, and who is to come above him. There is no other. We will all bow the knee 
confess with our tongues, Jesus is Lord. In fact, you will do that today. My skeptical friend of the Holy Spirit is drawing on your heart right now. This is God's purpose. The zeal of the Lord of armies is for his own glory, his own purposes. So this prosperity that will never end, this is heavenly. This dominion that, that we've asked, this is beyond the scope of just one single nation. And so, the, so likewise is the promise within this text that he will establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness now and forevermore. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it. You could see why the Orthodox Jew would think that this is about the political leadership of Israel because David was God's anointed king. Not the first king, that's Saul, but this David is the one whose story is at the center of Israel's flag today. It was on the throne of David. We saw prophecies to David regarding his son Solomon that also likewise had an eternality to them that applied not to Solomon, the son who would be born one day and would die thereafter, but to the eternal throne, the Messiah born through the line of David. This is Jesus. This is his dominion that is vast. His prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to sustain it. Not only to bring it about, but also to look after it thereafter, establish and sustain with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The justice of God is perfect and absolute. The righteousness that we see right here is evidence of the holiness of God. We saw this in Isaiah chapter five. We know the Lord of armies is exalted by his justice and the holy God demonstrates his holiness through his righteousness. The right things that God does, like bringing about the Messiah for a people who are in great need, giving us this son, this child, the Prince of Peace, this is all good. This right thing is not rooted in some sort of virtue signaling desire of God to look good. He's not compensating for a sinful past. He is truly holy, holy, holy. And out of that holiness comes this rightness. Look at the righteous things that God has done and behold them as evidence of his holy nature. His nature is the rubric by which we define goodness itself. Have you ever thought about the similarity between the word good and the name God? Everything that is good is like God. His nature is the rubric by which we define and understand and perceive and appreciate goodness. It's good because it reminds us of God. In his holy nature, he does righteous things. Righteous things like tell us he's going to miraculously bring about the Messiah and then actually follow through and do that. He establishes it and sustains it with justice and righteous, righteousness from now on and forever. It's truly amazing. This is true justice. This is true righteousness, not feigned righteousness, righteousness that is rooted in holiness. It is rooted in his holiness. Look at the very last sentence. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. We opened up talking about the zeal of God and he did it. He accomplished it. He did exactly what he said he would do. He actually accomplished the impossible. Jesus was born, born of a virgin. It was physically impossible that Messiah, Messiah would be born this way, but God did it. My God is a God of the impossible. And by the zeal that he has in his heart, by the zeal of the Lord of armies, he did it. He actually did it. And you could observe it today. Okay, listen to, listen to this story of God's army. All right, for perspective, let's start with just one angel, okay? In Isaiah chapter 37, you're gonna see the story of just one angel. 
And remember that God has multiple armies with multiple angels. Isaiah 37, 36, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. That's it. Don't ever tell a woman from Highlands Community Church that she looks like an angel because that woman has read her Bible and she knows that angels are terrifying. That is one angel. And God has armies of angels. He has absolute armies of them. But just for perspective too, we get a glimpse of these angel armies in 2 Kings chapter 6. When the servant of the man of God got up early and went out, he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. So he asked Elisha, that's one of God's prophets, oh, my master, what are we to do? Elisha said, don't be afraid for those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the, the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. A whole mountain was eclipsed with the army of the Lord's angel right there at his disposal. Any one of whom could slay an army of 185,000. Our God is the Lord of angel armies. He accomplished this. He is the one who did this. He is zealous. And it was purely out of his zeal that this happened. The molten hot zeal of the Lord of armies accomplished it. Every one of Isaiah's original recipients went to their graves, hoping it would happen. And the next generation hoped it would happen. And the next seven generations after those still hoped it would happen. But you happen to be privileged enough to have been born in time to see how God did it. Look at how this ancient prophecy is it just age is better than wine. We're among the privileged few who know the, the whole word of God. The vast majority of believers past ache to know the name of the one who would be called Prince of Peace. Today, we know his name. Say it with me, Jesus. Here's Matthew 4, 12 through 17. It actually draws on today's text. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Do you see how the same setting for the fulfillment was also set in the opening verse of the prophecy? This was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This is a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied. It's in Matthew 4. It's also in Luke chapter 1, Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. See, it was on the throne of David. The virgin's name was Mary and the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by his statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. God said that he would do it and the zeal of the Lord of armies did it. 
that same zeal, that molten, red-hot, blood-boiling passion that drives a husband to defend his bride has driven God to do exactly the impossible thing that he said he would do for his bride, the church, for you today. As you behold God calling his shot, it's an impossible one and he does it anyway, would you behold the truth of the word of God? My skeptical friend, everything you've ever believed about God, you've always known that it's true. You've always known he's always been there and now you've seen proof in the ancient prophecy of Isaiah, centuries older from Matthew. You know, you know, you know that this is not circular reasoning. The Bible even means in Latin, the books. These are separate documents. This is not circular, but linear from Isaiah through Matthew to you, from Isaiah through Luke to you. Right now, this is God calling his shot and fulfilling it perfectly. The zeal of the Lord of armies has accomplished this. Would you behold the spiritual battle that surrounds you right now? And would you see that those who are with us as Christians outnumber those who are against us in the spiritual realm? This is beautiful news. It's absolutely true. It's by that same zeal of God that accomplished this, that he draws on your heart now. You've always known that universes don't create themselves. You've always known that there's something more to the Bible. You know that feeling that you get when you read these words. They were written divinely, drawing you by the heart. And it's true. It's all true. Today, the zeal of the Lord of armies is drawing upon your heart. Would you pray with me right now? Give your heart and life to Jesus Christ and behold that zeal face to face one day in heaven. God, surely you were in this place and I didn't know it. I see it, God. Those who are with you outnumber those who are against you. You are the Lord of armies. I believe in you, God. I believe that you love me. I believe that you love me so much that you gave your one and only son, that if I would believe in him, I would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess, oh God, I have sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess, oh God, that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus. I believe that you are the Prince of Peace. I believe you are the wonderful counselor, one with the Spirit. I believe you're one with the Eternal Father. I believe that you are a mighty God. I believe that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no way I can come to God the Father except through Jesus, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Say it out loud right now, Jesus is Lord. Say it, Jesus is Lord. And write it in the comments for good measure. God, I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead. I believe that you prophesied Jesus' birth in Isaiah. And I believe that Jesus is drawing on my heart right now to be saved. God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.